Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis' ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Check out the new Thin Green Line podcast hosted on patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. It's a members-only podcast where game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife law enforcement, the outdoors, environmental subjects mixed with current events, and what members want to hear. Join them and become a part of the Thin Green Line. Keep wildlife out of your trash. The Wildlife Trash Safe developed by Presby Steel does just that. It is made of 14-gauge steel, welded construction, and holds a 32-gallon trash can or 10 kitchen bags. It has been black bear tested and was developed in conjunction with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. They are lockable, rollable, and they have free delivery in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Call today, 603-752-3022 or presbysteel.com. That's P-R-E-S-B-Y-S-T-E-E-L.com. Keep the wildlife wild and out of your trash with a wildlife trash safe. Guidefitter is the industry network for professional outdoor guides and outfitters. The trusted destination for consumers seeking and sharing guided hunting and fishing experiences of a lifetime and the enterprise influencer marketing platform for outdoor brands. Guidefitter and its members represent the pulse of the guided hunting and fishing industry. Guidefitter's outdoor partners provide discounts to select types of outdoor professionals, including game wardens, members of the military, guides, outfitters, and other outdoor professionals. Over 145 brand partners and counting. Gear across many categories, including packs, footwear, clothing, flashlights, knives, optics, even firearms and ammo. For more information, go to guidefitter.com slash wardenswatch. That's wardenswatch, all one word. I'm game warden Wayne Saunders, and I'm a member of Guidefitter. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. 
Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief and Wildlife Heritage, a foundation of New Hampshire at nhwildlifeheritage.org and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 35, Rick Wilcox, Mountaineer and IME owner, so International Mountain Equipment owner in North Conway, New Hampshire. You know, the, the reason I interviewed Rick Wilcox is because he was very instrumental in helping build our search and rescue team, which is very technical, maybe probably not as technical as those guys operate at, but very technical so we can operate. And John, you, you, you built a team when, when, when you built your special operations team for the marijuana eradication. And you must have reached out to these specialized people that have all these talents and to bring them in to teach you so you can become the, the, the best that you guys can be in your realm. Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. And, and Rick brings such a unique skill set and, and quality to to search and rescue and, and anything in the thin green line as a game warden. And, you know, we went to the Marine Mountain Warfare Training Center up in the eastern Sierra Mountains of California, and it was those groups and military groups with ropes courses and rappelling and mountaineering. And we had a couple of pretty seasoned mountain climbers actually on the team that had summited like El Capitan and Yosemite and done some pretty big mountains. Nothing like Rick did being one of the first to summit Everest, mm. you know, I think back, back in, like you said, 93. So man, what, what a great guy to get to know. And yeah, that is the best of the best from the standpoint of teaching any search and rescue team, especially game wardens to get them to that skill set. because what not everybody realizes is, as you and I have discussed many times before, is the extreme mountain elevations you guys have out on the East coast in your state and the wind speeds that are up there that are, you know, that actually rival that you would see on an Everest climb or a K2 or, or, you know, anything of the, you know, the, the, the tier one most arduous peaks around the globe. Great stuff hearing from him and the, and the stuff he has to share is amazing. But I think our listeners are going to love it. No, no doubt. And just to have that expertise and, and basically my backyard is pretty awesome to be able to go down and sit with him and talk him about his experience in Nepal and, and climbing so many other peaks. And then last year, if you remember, remember we had 11 deaths on Everest and they had those iconic pictures of the lines of people yep. to summit it. And Rick explains all that very well. And I, I almost couldn't wait till, till the end. You know, I get towards the end of the podcast to ask him those questions. That, but I, I almost couldn't wait because <laughs> for me, that's what I wanted to get to. I wanted to know why why are all these problems? And he, he lays that out, explains it. And the difference is from when he summited Everest and he only summited it once. I guess you only have to hit it once. That's, uh, that's Once you hit it, I'd leave it alone. So, But he's done all a lot of other peaks in Nepal and runs uh, – climbing expeditions around the world to, to hit these peaks and wow yeah no yeah. it's 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 a pretty awesome to have him on board to work with us and we still they they, they operate at a level above the, the game wardens but he certainly brought the game wardens up quite a few levels to operate with those guys in conjunctions so, yeah i know it's it's a pretty dynamic podcast and uh without further ado rick wilcox <laughs> Today's podcast is with Rick Wilcox of uh, Mountain Rescue Service. Uh, Rick's been uh, with Mountain Rescue Service. He was uh, the president for 40 years, and you're still with Mountain Rescue, Serv- Rescue Service, aren't you, Rick? Yes, I'm still a director and uh, team leader, though 
recently, as we all went out the door, one of the younger guys turned to me and said, why don't you skip this one? <laughs> and that was great. That was the river rescue that we did over in Franconia just a little while ago, all nighter, getting some guy out of a flooded river in the, um, over in, uh, by the basin um, and recently got an award for that with the uh, river rescue team and the mountain rescue team. Nice, nice. That's a, certainly an interview I'm going to do too with uh, Darren and the, the the Swift Water Rescue Team. That's right. So that's that's an important uh, relationship too. So, but uh, the the relationship with the Mountain Rescue Service and Fish and Game goes goes way back, and uh, you know, to 40, 40 years ago. When when was Mountain Rescue Service actually established? Uh, Mountain Rescue was established in 1972 by a group of people that represented. Uh, fishing game like Bill Hastings, uh, Forest Service, which would be Brad Ray, uh, AMC, Brian Fowler, and uh, Roger Damon, Dan Bodine. These people were on the Appalachian Mountain Club Search and Rescue Committee, and they felt that it was time to put together a specialized technical team that could operate on the cliffs and the winter conditions above treeline on Mount Washington that go beyond the normal capabilities of AMC Fishing Game Fire Service. And so they created the Mountain Rescue Service. Then they came to the climbers and said, guess what? You guys are the team that are going to go and do these rescues. And at the time, uh, the relationship between the climbing community and, let's say, uh, Fishing and Game and, and local fire departments and fire service, was it wasn't bonded quite yet. They kind of looked at climbers as uh, people that lived in their cars and were kind of weird people and weren't very responsible. And what they found out was uh, over the years, and what I found out was... And, and a lot of them did during that time, right? Well, they did, yeah. <laughs> they, needed to be, they needed to be rounded up. Right, yes, right. for exactly, sure. Exactly. For sure. There's no question about that. But looking at uh, people who are climbers like myself, I have a degree in forestry, Mm. That's what I went. I knew I wanted to be outdoors. Your passion's in the outdoors. I could have been a fishing game officer. Absolutely. Easily. Yes. Uh, if my career had gone a little different, uh, half of the snow ranges, more than half of the snow ranges, worked for me at one time or another as mountain guides. Nice. Now they all work up on my Washington. You know, mm -hmm. people like Frank Harris, the head snow ranger, he worked for me for years. Yes. You know, uh, a lot, all the guys up there, um, a lot of them move on to, you know, better paying jobs with uh, Forest Service. And um, I know that Alex Lobachonsky could easily have worked for me as a guide. Absolutely. And that's how we got to know each other before he was in fishing game. And when yeah. he went to get into fishing game, I said, yeah, that he'd be a great fishing game guy. And so. I've always found you guys are such a resource for information, too. It's just not calling you up and sending you out to do the stuff that we really can't do. Or actually, we're integrated with you now, but we weren't originally. Uh, but, you know, just the experience on the mountains and, you know, I think for a new lieutenant, they're foolish not to call and ask Rook Wilcox what he thinks on a, a mission. Well, um, I'm, I'm quite honored to be in that position today. But yes, 500 rescues later, yes. we've learned our lessons. And, and you earned that honor. Uh, well, And there's many, you. many other people. Mike Pelchick was one I called on a regular basis to get that type of information too. So. Yes. And it's, it's all teamwork. Yes. It's, it's taking the resources of fish and game, the skills of the mountain climbers and mountain rescue, uh, Mike's team like Avsar, and just putting it all together uh, and uh, being very efficient in terms of our use of manpower is what mm. it really works out to. If you have a search going on and there's areas that are technical, you put mountain rescue over there. You've got areas that aren't quite so technical. You put Avsar, Pemi in those areas. Uh, you've got somebody in the river. You go get the river guys and... It all works really good. All different search and rescue teams yeah. we're talking about that come together. Bring in that Blackhawk. You know, we love riding around in there. <laughs> uh, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. So, But it wasn't always that way. When we talk about, like, Bill Hastings in the beginning, I mean, uh, you kind of kind of pointed, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had some interesting uh, first events. Uh, I remember one on Iron Mountain where a climber, not a climber, I guess a tourist, had fallen off the top of the cliff there and needed a rescue. Uh and um, Pete Lyons was in his car, and we arrived at the scene of the trailhead, and the window came down, and Pete said, well, I, they're up there on the cliff. Go get them. And up the window <laughs> went, and off we went, and the air conditioner went back on in his car. And uh, we needed a helicopter, and I called on the radio to Pete, and I said, get the helicopter. And he, he brought it in, and yeah. uh, we saved a life, and, and, and it was good. Uh, but 
you know, there wasn't much backup for fish and game there no. uh, at the time. Uh, and we also had a similar event occur um, in North Conway with uh, back in the 70s, early 70s, there was a head of the rescue team in uh, North Conway Fire Department. It was a guy named Fudd Chinook. And Richard Chinook was his real name. And, Chinook. And, and he went by Fudd. And Fudd was this great big, he was the nicest guy in the world. He was the perfect guy for a rescue. He, he could, um, you know, in-town car rescues, fires, you know, things yeah. like that. They were great. Well, we had a, a, a guy who was swimming at, uh, over at Echo Lake and saw the climbers on Whitehorse and decided that, hey, that didn't look so bad. So in his bathing suit, he went up halfway up Whitehorse. Oh, boy. And so he's up there, you know, hanging on by his fingernails and yelling for help. And so the fire department and the police and everybody went over there and they kind of roped off the area and uh, <laughs> I, I saw them all go over and I said, huh, I wonder what's going on over there. So I drove over with a couple of the climbers and, and I saw Fudd and we didn't really know each other at the time quite yet. And I went over to Fudd and I said, uh, hey, can we help? We're, we're climbers. And he goes, no, stand back. You know, the police came over and said, could you guys move back a little? You're right. Said okay, but we're not going to go home. We're going to watch and see mm-hmm. what happens. Well, they were fun- funneling around with their fireman suits and mm-hmm. didn't have the right shoes or ropes or anything. So just went out for an hour or two. And the meanwhile, the guys up there, help, help. So I went over to Fud again. I said, "Hey, Fud, give us ten minutes. Give us fifteen minutes. Just see if we can help you guys out. When do we get the guy down? He's all yours." And he finally said, "Okay." And so we went up. 15 minutes we grabbed the guy we brought him down this is our backyard this is our yes. playground and we delivered him to the uh north conway rescue and fud came over to the store later and he said you know rick you guys are pretty good at that aren't you and i said yeah we are but we don't <laughs> do you know burning houses car right. crashes that's your department specialized so why don't we work together when you have a call for a rescue on white horse at cathedral just give us a ring. We'll meet you over there. You guys can provide the ambulances. You can do a litter crew from the bottom of the cliff over to the ambulance. You've got the paramedics, lights at night. But, you know, stay off the cliff. We'll take care of that. And mm. you know what? Over the years, you know, probably 100 rescues over there, and we worked together with them perfectly. Wow. Great, great combination. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it. And then we just kind of evolved with that into – I know Rick, you know, Estes, uh, Lieutenant Estes, uh, and you worked very closely together to integrate fish and game officers more into the rescue. And I still don't think, I think some of them are up to the level maybe, but not not everybody, you know. So we still use you, or the fish and game department uses you quite often when it gets too technical or we don't have enough people for that technical stuff. Yes, uh, I think that what happened during the 70s was that Every time there was a cat in a tree, they called Mountain Rescue. Every time there was a sprained ankle at, you know, Diana's Bass, it was called Mountain Rescue. So pretty soon we were doing, you know, a rescue a week. And um, Rick Estes, Lieutenant Estes, who uh, I have the greatest friendship with, um, came over to me and he said, how about we create in fishing game an elite team? These are uh, uh, game wardens who can go beyond – opening a window in the car and closing the window. Mm-hmm. We're going to get them in the field. <laughs> We're going to get them out there. We're going to train them. We're going to equip them. And they're going to become maybe not the elite technical team right. that we are, but they're going to be able to do winter searches. They're going to be able to go out overnight. They're going to be able to uh, do litter carries. They're going to be uh, in the field side by side with you guys And I'll tell you what some of the benefits of that were. One of the big things that we had going on was um, when we arrived at the scene of an accident where somebody was dead, we had to determine, Mountain Rescue, had to determine whether there was any foul play. Right. And we're not trained to do that. Right. We don't know forensic things that you guys know. We've had some of those that haven't foul play. Over the years, we've had a lot. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But having a game on with you mm-hmm. to make those determinations to say don't touch that person until i've done my job and you know 99 sure the guy fell off the cliff or he's froze to death out in the back country something happened and it didn't go right for him but he wasn't murdered but we've had murders so we've had a lot of jumpers jump off mm-hmm. cathedral ledge and i've spent time i remember with Marty garabedian i spent a whole day seeing where the footsteps were see was this guy pushed off the cliff or did he jump you know i mean Mm -hmm. these are things that you guys as professionals have to solve and we can mess it up so when you get the 
you know, a guy like, I just remember Brian was always out there. He was and one of your great. Brian Abrams, one of our local officers yes, here. And, yes, and we miss him. Yes. But um, he was a great asset to fishing game in terms of he wanted to be with us all yes. the time. And I remember being with him on top of Pinnacle Gully in about a 100-mile-an-hour wind, minus 20. We're, we, we're looking for two guys that were lost in, in Pinnacle Gully on Mount Washington, and Brian was with me, and we found them at the top, frozen, solid. Wow. And Brian sat down next to him, and he said, where do you think these guys are, Rick? And I said, look to your right. The guy next to you is dead. He's not alive. He's just in a sitting position. And he went, oh! <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so he was there. And so he was able to determine that uh, when the weather got better, we'd come back and, and move them up yeah. to the auto road, actually, from there. But wow. We wouldn't take them down. But we miss him. But um, I've worked with so many of these uh, uh, game wardens over the years. Um, Jeff Gray and then uh, Marty and um, uh, Todd Bogatis. Yes. Rick Estes. Rick was great because he trained us in, in GPS. Right. And he had his own little business going on the side where he would teach us uh, GPS skills. And I know he taught. And Rick grabbed that. As soon as GPS came out, he grabbed that. And the, I, I have one of the first GPSs ever. And, you know, he learned that and he taught it to us. And, yeah, what a skill that he was able to bring right on the board right away. So, yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it, was, it was so helpful. Yeah. Well, everybody in Mount Rescue took the course at least twice with him. Mm-hmm. And then periodically as we did our trainings, Rick would come in and, and do a refresher and, and, nice. and keep us up to date on all the latest. Yeah, technology has been a helpful thing and a hindering thing. So uh, I think that's probably in most cases and most things. So. I think uh, that's one of my uh, only uh, concerns about cell phones and spot devices and all these new things they have is that if you use those as your security blanket, we can keep going because we have a cell phone or we can keep going because we have a spot and get yourself into trouble uh, where if you didn't have those devices, uh, you might not have made those decisions. Mm. Uh, then I, this, you have to be very, very responsible. You know, this whole thing with Kate. Um, uh, Matrasova, the risk management, we talked about that earlier, you and I. Yeah, so. I mean, she had every freaking electronic device like no. She had a spot and a mm -hmm. cell phone and a GPS Satellite and all phone. this stuff. And as Rick Estes put it, after we chatted about this incident, he said, well, you couldn't eat one of those. You can't mm -hmm. get in it and stay warm. Right. It's not a piece of clothing. It's not a tent. It's not mm -hmm. a sleeping bag. They're just All affected by the cold, too. And when the batteries get cold, they don't work right. Yes. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Yeah, so. absolutely. So, but you know, how, how'd you get here? Like, let's go back to how Rick Wilcox got to be a mountaineer. Well, uh, when I was in high school down in Massachusetts on the North Shore, I joined the Appalachian Mountain Club and took their rock climbing lessons. I, by the age of six, well, so 16, like 16. Yeah, yeah, when I got my driver's license. Wow. The day I was 16, I got it. And I was tearing around. I, I did <laughs> all the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire by the time I think I was 16. Sleeping in your vehicle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, when I went to college, I went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I ran into some mountain climbers out there and actually used one of my college loans to go on my first expedition. I've been on <laughs> 67 expeditions so far. Wow. Uh, but my first one was to Alaska in 1969 when I was a junior in college, and my parents never knew I took my college loan and spent it on the expedition instead of that semester, but I got through because I was working, so I stayed in college. <laughs> you worked your butt off to make up for it, didn't you? I did, and I still slept in a basement there somewhere that semester, <sighs> but but it, it worked. And That gave uh, you the bug, though, the first expedition? I did great. Uh, relative to the rest of the group, I was good at high altitude. Uh -huh. uh, I, I was on my first glacier. I was on my first big mountain. And, and you were uh, hooked. It, it, you know, I did okay, and so I was encouraged that, 
you know, my, my dreams of someday going to the Himalayas or going to the big mountains in the Andes, uh, where, where I wasn't shut down with one of those guys who couldn't go up to high altitude or something like that. So that was good. It was a good experience. It certainly was better than what I ever would have learned that semester if I had to drop out of college. I mean, I stayed in, I got my degree, everything worked out all right there. And while I was in Amherst, Eastern Mountain Sports opened a store in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, and they offered me a job when I graduated to work in Boston, which I really didn't want to do, but I, I did. I took the job and they said, well, would you like to work in a store in North Conway, New Hampshire? And I said, yeah. And my parents actually own land in Eaton. And I've nice. been up here every summer. I and you've been up here hiking every 4,000 foot or you could. I met Henry Mock as a counselor. Uh, at our Camp former Decombi major. Yeah. And, and I used to go out with him uh, when he was just a, the basic game officer. And we'd ride around together. And he'd check on fishermen. And I'd go hiking. And we'd meet for dinner. And, and we got along great. Nice. And that's how I met Henry. And as up here as a camp counselor. And so uh, I moved up here in... 1971, full-time, mm. and lived in a little camp down in Eaton that I built for my parents. <laughs> and uh, the the things started to evolve. We had the climbing school here. I was teaching some rock climbing and ice climbing that I'd learned you know, from my prior experiences at college in the AMC. Uh, we had the retail store, and I tried to go climbing somewhere every year, like in Yosemite or maybe up again take a to trip. Alaska. Yep, take yep. a climbing trip, climbed in the Alps. And eventually in 19, actually in 1971, went on my first trip down to Peru to the Andes. Wow. And so my... Uh, now when you went, did you go as a group or pretty much, you know, yourself? These were originally personal climbing trips, but then I began uh, offering uh, a little bit later when I, when I took over International Mountain Equipment in 1979, I started offering offering international trips to customers who wanted to go climb, like Mount McKinley. Mm-hmm. We had a so an arrangement up there in Alaska. We we went down to Peru uh, and climbed the highest peaks down there. We went to Aconcagua, which is in Argentina, and climbed the highest peak in the Western Hemisphere, which is one of the seven summits, Aconcagua. Nice. We did that a bunch of times. And so each year we were doing some guiding internationally. We were teaching ice climbing and rock climbing in uh North Conway, I wrote the first book on ice climbing, of which there's four editions. Uh, nice. We're still selling the ice climbing guide. and th- it's, it's due for an update, but nobody seems to be able to do it. So the guide we've got is still selling well. Um, so and then we started the Ice Festival here, which is a big event uh, here. It was the first one of its kind in America. There are now 20 or 30 of them, but we were wow. the first. Uh, as you know, the White Mountains are fantastic ice climbing Absolutely. resource. Um, so, you know, as the years went on, uh, you're developing as you know, uh, I got the kid that involved. slept in the car now that you, that's right. You're developing in the kid that goes to South America to climb peaks. So, yeah, yeah. uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And of course the mountain rescue, the relationship with the fishing game evolved, mm-hmm. uh, uh, forest service with Brad Ray and Rennie up there. Uh, then eventually Chris Jusen who, who took it over. From Brad, yeah, and we're we're talking about their snow rangers in the White Mountains because, that's right. uh, and that's a pretty unique thing in the Forest Service too. I think uh, uh, are they the only snow rangers within the Forest Service, or I think they have similar people out west. Okay, but only ones on the East Coast. Only ones on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mount Washington is uh, a great asset for mountaineers here. It has everything but high altitude. It has, mm. you know kick your butt weather in the winter it has great ice it has great snow it has avalanches it has great skiing um it's a great place for because it doesn't have the altitude do you think people don't take it as seriously oh yeah i think so they they say how can a small mountain like that be so serious yeah exactly and it is <laughs> yeah yeah and and uh, i mean how many deaths up there 160 yeah. or 70 and growing now? yeah i mean and I think that's the reason why they don't take it serious. It's it's just it's, it's a six thousand foot or big deal. Yeah, that's right. You know? They say meters or feet. I say feet. <laughs> six thousand meters is like Mount McKinley, you know, twenty thousand feet. So yeah. no, it's it but it's it's got the above tree line, the jet stream. It's yeah, you so what North Conway means to me, Mount Washington and the cliffs like Whitehorse Cathedral, Cannon Cliff, which I love, uh, is its base camp. Mm. And I learned my skills here. I learned hiking, camping, uh, backpacking. I learned rock climbing, ice climbing, alpinism. I'm out Washington, 
big wall climbing on Cannon. I went to Yosemite and climbed big walls. Went good. Yeah. I went to bigger mountains, used the skills I learned on Mount Washington, and it went good. And you're teaching these and skills, And I didn't even too. kill myself. I'm still here. <laughs> that's, that's great. I used up a few of my my lives, but, <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of it was my attitude that it doesn't matter whether you get to the top or not. It matters that you come down alive. Yes. And I think that's when we a look great at attitude. some of our uh, missions, our rescue missions mm. over the years, have been people who feel that, I'm going to do this or die, yes. and they die. Yes, you know they're driven. Jeremy type a Haas people. on Jefferson, you probably mm-hmm. remember that one. Yes, uh, and uh, Tinkerman there, yeah, he died, and then of course Kate, and so many times um, the guys when I, when I was up in Pinnacle Gully with gold oriented people, and that's Brian. what they got to do, and and this sort of attitude that um, the weather forecast is really going to get bad this afternoon and tonight. But we can do it. We can get up there mm-hmm. this mo- in the morning early and get this thing knocked off. Well, these guys in Pinnacle Gully, the two that died, they got a late start. The weather came in. They got trapped, and they died. Yes. And if they just said, why don't we go climbing in Crawford Notch today instead of Mount Washington, mm-hmm. they could have had a nice day ice climbing and been at the bar that night having a beer Yep. instead of us going out and, you know. Yep, but it out. was in their schedule to do this, and uh, that's, you know. So some people just don't appreciate the weather changing and how it changes and how drastic it gets because they have it scheduled. They're goal oriented people, and That's right. those uh, those type A people are probably more danger to themselves in Mother Nature than anything else because Mother Nature, as we know, can not be kind at ton- at times. So exactly, and what we tell people when they're planning their hike up Mount Washington or whatever is don't think of what you're going to be doing at four o'clock this afternoon when you're starting out at eight or seven in the morning every hour assess the situation mm-hmm. how am i doing am i going as fast as i thought i would go uh how am i feeling uh how is the weather how is my partner doing he's not as fast as i am maybe right. we should slow down maybe we should turn back maybe we should change our plan uh making these decisions rather than saying oh we're going to get to the top and then we'll decide what to do right is the secret to staying alive i think no oh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head absolutely mm-hmm. if, if everybody does that we wouldn't have any any problems in the whites so or anywhere else that's right uh, a little bit of common sense thrown in there yeah i, I like the the idea of getting back alive so that's, i think that's the goal the, not to reach the peak yeah another great thing that that todd bogatis did was to create the, the hike safe program and he printed up these little cards that have like a i think there's 14 or 13 items that you should have in your backpack if you're going out on a hike in the white mountains a headlamp, uh, extra food, extra water, a jacket, hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, plan to be out overnight. Uh, I know it's not a, an overnight trip, but what if you have to spend the night out? Do you have something in your pack that would allow you to get through the night so that people like us, fishing game, fire service, whoever, mountain rescue, can come to you and aid you and get you out of there? Uh, but a lot of people spend the night out before we get to them. No if doubt. They don't have the gear in their pack. It's a long night. Some Absolutely, make it. and that's just to get you there. You know, people can break legs, and you have to live right there where you broke your leg. So if it's in your pack, you can actually facilitate your own rescue, or at least sustain your own, you know, being alive until someone can get you. Because uh, you know, that's that's having all that in the pack is just priceless. That's right. And I tell people rather than saying you're going to be the problem, I say, what if you come across an injured climber in your hike? Are you prepared to spend the night with them? Right. While help comes. You are the rescue team. Mm-hmm. So you need the gear. Nope. So there you go. <laughs> yep. and, it, and it's not that hard to have the life-sustaining gear with you. Not really, no. You know, it's uh, those 10 essentials <clears throat> are small, 10 essentials you throw in there, pay attention to the weather, dress appropriately, bring extra clothing, you know, strip it off if you don't need it and just throw it in. The, the, the clothing they're making now is, is crazy. You know, it's, it's so high tech and so good. Yeah, and it's not going to make your pack, you know, 80 pounds. It's no. going to be, you know, maybe add five or eight pounds to your pack. Yep, and that could save your life, five That's or right. eight pounds, right. so for sure. Uh, your your experience uh, overseas and uh, get to the top, the, the Everest thing, uh, that's always the most uh, interesting thing when I listen to you. And, and you know what's interesting to me lately is just seeing Everest on the news with all the deaths and the line to the top. And how long have you been climbing Everest for? Because you've had uh, quite a ex- lot of experience there. Well, I 
you know, like most young climbers, read all the books about Mount Everest, about Sir Edmund Hillary, and then the Whitaker, you know, Jim Whitaker was the first American to climb it. And, you know, all about the Himalayas. And I, I really felt that I wanted to go do that someday. And um, so as my career progressed, and I got to be about 35 years old, I knew that it was time to go to the Himalayas, that I had been to all these other mountain ranges, but I had never been to the Himalayas. And I went on a Polish expedition, actually, which was great. They told me how to go. They taught me how to go cheap. Like the fishing game <laughs> taught me a lot. These guys taught me how you cannot spend money on stuff. Uh. So so we went to a peak called Choi Oyu. Choi Oyu is the sixth highest peak in the world. It's right next to Mount Everest. Uh, the hike in is very similar. You just go up a different valley. And I was in there for three months with them and a good friend of mine, Mark Ritchie from Boston, who's a world-class climber. And we did uh, a very successful climb on the south face of Choyoyu, which has never been repeated. Uh, we were able to climb not to the very summit of Choyoyu, but to the peak next to it called Gazumpakan 1, uh, which is the 18th highest peak in the world and did the third ascent of the peak and by a new route. And that's probably one of my greatest climbs ever, even though my mother never it, heard of that. It one. sounds it. <laughs> so the next and, year... And the route's never been repeated? No. No. And they that's all because go up, it's difficult, there's, there's right? There's a normal route I'd show you. They all go up on the Tibetan side, which I actually climbed later. Yeah. I guided it. Uh, and and why'd you choose the other route, just out of curiosity? I don't know. That's what the Polish were that's up the doing. Polish. They all gave up and went home and <laughs> left me and Mark there to finish the route. So uh, we did. It was, great. it was great. And then uh, the next year I went to Makaloo. Makaloo is the fifth highest peak in the world. I spent three months on that. Didn't quite get to the top. You know, someone's going to listen to this podcast and have to repeat what you did because it's never been done since then. So I'm just, I'm just thinking they're going <laughs> to... I can show them where it is. Head them in that direction. Oh, sorry to interrupt you, but that was just, that was just killing me. I'm like, someone's going to do that. They're going to listen to that and they're going to want to follow your footsteps. So, so well, anyways, the next year, 19, uh, this would be 86, I went to... Um, uh, Makalu, the fifth highest peak in the world, and and spent you know a lot of time on that. The next year, I uh, and that's was in the Himalayas as well. Oh yeah, that's right yeah. next to Mount Everest on the okay. other side. Yeah. Oh, these big these are eight thousand meter peaks. They're over twenty six thousand feet tall. Wow, the biggest ones in the world. And there's fourteen of them. And and so that was two. The Choyu was the sixth highest. And, and when Mac you spent three months, that that's that's just getting acclimated and yep. doing a lot of other smaller... Well, working your way up the route. Okay. Yeah. yeah so that, it takes three months Carrying to get loads, there. Carrying loads, putting in camps, waiting okay. for the weather to get good, getting your body... Uh, you have to increase your red blood cell count, get so you can breathe um, the air at 26,000 feet without bottled oxygen. We hadn't used any oxygen ever at this point. Okay except for the available, you know, mm -hmm. what we have in the atmosphere. Gotcha. Um, then I went in 88, I guided a peak called uh, Island Peak, which is a smaller one in the Himalayas. Uh, that was a commercial trip. Those first two were just for me. And then um, I went to uh, Langtang in 1990. I had a permit for Everest for 91 by then. Me and Mark uh, Ritchie mm. had gotten the permit. And on uh, Langtang... I set a record. Uh, one of the ropes broke, and I fell 2,200 feet, walked away from it. Wow. Um, that that was a, a good eye-opener, not to use thin ropes for fixed ropes. It, it, there was an avalanche hit us, and the rope broke, and uh, so I survived that one. So I, I used up one of my lives on that one. I, I would say. <laughs> I would say. Uh, fortunately, the, where I fell was kind of like falling down the headwall of Tuckermans. It was a straight shot, though we fell about three Tuckerman Ravine headwalls. So dropping and rolling and yep. skidding down. Well, in the snow, too. In the snow. In the avalanche, yeah. In the avalanche. Yeah. Trying to stay on top. Yeah, sort of. Wow. And we did. Yeah. There was a couple other guys went down with me. We, we all survived okay. So now uh, this would be my fifth Himalayan expedition, my 25th expedition overall, 1991. We went to Everest with uh, eight of us. Uh, we had two doctors. It's good to bring an extra one just in case sometimes <laughs> the first one. You know, you bring extra gear. So yeah, that's, extra that's smart. Yeah. And it was Mark Ritchie and I were the two leaders. I was the expedition leader. He was what we call the climbing leader, which was kind of a, um, I guess you'd say we were the two bosses on the expedition. We had some, Mark Chauvin was a guide. He lives here in town. He worked for me at the time. Uh, Barry Rugo, a guy from Boston. Yves Lafare, a guide that worked for me from Montreal who, um, worked for me a lot in South America. It was, you know, it was just friends. It was just, mm -hmm. 
there was no commercial, nobody paying extra. It was all, um, and we paid about $10,000 each. We were uh, there for four months. We did all the work. We put the ropes through the icefall. We put in the camps. We carried the loads. We used Sherpas up to camp two. After that, we couldn't afford them. Uh, we got up to the high camp. We had to come all the way down, go all the way back to the high camp. The high camp's higher than Annapurna, which is one of the 14 highest peaks in the world. Mm. It's over 26,000 feet at the camp, at the which camp. is usually the top of these bigger mountains. Mm-hmm. And then you got 3,000-foot climb to the top of Everest from there. It's 29,035 feet. So we got the weather. Four of us summited. Um, Mark and Yves Lafare were about an hour ahead of Barry Rugo and I, summoning the peak uh, by the Hillary route. Uh, we didn't use any ropes. We had one bottle of oxygen each on the trip for the summit climb, and that went well. Uh, and the other four either couldn't get to the top because they pooped out or they just used up too much energy earlier on in the trip. And so four of us, half the team, made the summit. Uh, we were there all alone. There was nobody else there. Any, um, any other groups trying to summit? At, at the beginning, there was three other groups. There was some Swiss, there was some Koreans, and there was some Italians. And they backed off and went home. It was kind of too much work for them. And then there was a guy named Ed Vistas, who's a very famous American. He was guiding a client, and he uh, his client uh, didn't make it, but he eventually summited uh, behind us. Mm-hmm. Uh, alone he came up but we were all climbing you know without a rope or anything i mean right. that's the way you do it yeah so what happened um we we were the first east coast americans to ever climb everest first guy from new hampshire mark was first guy from massachusetts barry was from massachusetts and eve was from montreal so he was the first quebec choir ever to climb everest and and so you know we came back and while business was on the brink of disaster you know from being away the lecturing <laughs> business was good. Um, I made a l- enough money lecturing uh, quite a bit to get the boat floating again here, and that was good. Uh, and then in 96, the first big commercial expeditions went to Everest. Mm. And actually in 95, they did pretty good. They got a few non-climbers to the top of Everest by guiding them. And they said, give us the money, we can get you to the top. Mm. 96... Two competing companies went up there. They wouldn't turn back at noon, which was when you got to turn back on Everest because of the weather. The, the, every afternoon, the sun creates storms and wind and clouds, and you just got to get out of there. You leave at midnight, you get to the top, you get out of there by noon. Wow. Well, they didn't. 14 people died. Jeez. It was called, uh, the, the famous book came out, Into Thin Air, mm-hmm. and people read that book, and they all wanted to climb Mount Everest. Every of course they did. And so what's happened is what you see on TV now. Thousand people are in base camp in May waiting for Sherpas to fix 10 miles of rope to the top for Sherpas and guides from various companies around the world to stock oxygen bottles in all the camps, to put in all the camps, to carry these people's packs up to the camps. And then when the weather window in May occurs, see, we summited on May 15th. This Mm -hmm. is uh, the the only time of the year you can go to the top of Everest is in the month of May. You get about a 10-day window. And then these people are told, 200 a day can go up, stay at the various camps, you know, use the oxygen. They usually have a Sherpa in front of them and a Sherpa behind them. Um, They're cared for all the way to the summit, all the way down. And what happened this year is not uncommon. They got gridlock on that summit ridge just below the summit. Mm Mm-hmm. Hundreds of them in a line. In a line, yeah. 11 people died standing there from hypothermia, from exhaustion, from running out of oxygen, because they're all in bottles. Once you go on bottled oxygen, you can't go off it. It's kind of like scuba diving upside down. Yeah. You start using it, and you run out on top or near the summit, you you just collapse. And that's why you spent so much time up there prior to, so your body adjusts so you can breathe that air. That's right. And all of us that went to the summit on Everest could have at least got down without bottled oxygen because we were so well acclimated after being there for so long, Mm -hmm. uh, for three months above 17,000 feet. And our red blood cells, we were right at that peak where if anything went wrong, we'd at least be able to get down. We wouldn't just collapse and faint. And um, so we had a successful, uh, that one bottle that we used to get up there, that was great. (laughs) It's good stuff. But, you know, it it wasn't something that was like scuba diving. But yet, these, these guided people start at Camp 3, which is um, 23,000, and they usually use about 15 bottles, and then never off it from there to the summit and all the way back down to the uh, 
wow. Camp 3. And uh, if they go off, they're in great risk of either dying or at least being almost, um, well, they're certainly not going to be able to climb much. So some of these people are running out of bottled and the, oxygen. You know, basically. and the Sherpas bring them down and the guides, mm-hmm. you know, take care of them. And the other picture I've seen on Everest is just oxygen bottles everywhere discarded. That's right. And uh, that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Now, what's interesting is that the permit fee per person when I climbed it with my group of eight was about three, $300 a piece. Mm-hmm. Now the permit, just the permit is $12,000 oh my goodness. per person. The government gets the $12,000. So you do the math, 12,000 times 1,000 or 500, 600, mm. whoever, how many people are in base camp. The politicians split up that money. None wow. of it goes to trail maintenance or cleanup or any kind of facilities for climbers, you know, some kind of human waste disposal or something. None mm-hmm. of it. That's all up to the climbers. Um, in fact, I think you have to post a $50,000 bond now, and they count all the cans and wrappers and all the poop, and then if you don't bring it all back down, you're fined uh, by the government uh, for not doing that, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But, again, there could be more management there with that money that comes in for the permit fees, but that's not the way they do it over there. Right, it's, it's, uh, and they probably have a lot to clean up from the times they didn't charge it i have to say the climbers do a pretty good job they in do. general but good. whenever you got that many people oh. and the higher you go the tougher life gets the more difficult it is to right. do the right things yeah because yeah. it freezes yeah <laughs> everything freezes that's right so you know if you got a hundred thousand dollars you don't know what to do with and you don't know much about climbing but you're a good athlete you can sign up for an Everest trip it can be your first time you've ever wore double boots, first time you've ever had crampons on your feet, yeah. first time you've ever done anything like that ever, and they'll take you uh, because there's so much money in it. Right. So are, you, are you still doing that trip? Oh, no, no. I, I only climbed it once okay. with, with my friends. Now, yeah. I've been to the Himalayas 37 times, Yes. and I've climbed a lot of other peaks. Uh-huh. The Himalayas have hundreds of huge mountains in them. You don't need to go to Mount Everest, but Mount Everest is Mount Everest. It's the highest. Yeah. When I did it, I had no idea that 28 years later, it would be a mob scene of rich people. There are no real climbers in that picture. Mm. You look at all those people on the ridge. Those wow. are not real climbers. Those are just people either working, the Sherpas or the guides, or yeah. people being guided. Wow. That's all it is. And that rope goes all the way to the top. Huh. You're never off the rope the whole way up and down. Wow. And it's very inefficient, as you can see. You spend yes. a lot of time waiting in line. Uh, well, it kind of was a shocker because uh, there was a line at the Headwall and Tuckerman's uh, a couple years ago. You know, I got, there's a wait at Tuckerman's. I'm like, what do you mean there's a wait? Well, th- there's enough people on that trail that everybody has to wait for the next person to take a step. And I'm like, I think it was maybe Queen's Day. It was a popular hiking weekend. And I was like, first time I've ever heard of that. And I'm like, hiking is becoming so popular that, you know, yeah. maybe that's the future. <laughs> well, you know, Tuckerman's Ravine is like Mount Everest. How many peaks do we have in the White Mountains? If, if if what do we got on top of Mount Washington? We, you're, we have you're, museums, we have trains, right. we have cars. You can get you're hit right. by a car on the yeah, summit the of Mount Washington. Highest point on the East Coast. You're right. It is. Yeah. A day <laughs> when there are literally thousands of people on Mount Washington. How many people are on top of Mount Adams? Yeah, no, no doubt. Good point. Might be ten. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're alone. I've been on top of Mount Adams many times all by myself with my mm-hmm. friends whoever i was hiking with right go up and spend the night in one of the randolph lodges a few other hikers they're not you know i mean they're the people that are pretty well equipped they got a mm-hmm. pretty good idea what they're doing but you get um, the line to mount washington yeah that's that's a it's great a analogy and i think that's just our our um answer to mount everest is mount washington i mean it's yeah. the same thing just, yeah you're, you're absolutely correct you got, i you never know, heard it framed that way but you're right quibbling with the observatory quibbling with the auto road i mean that's what's going on on mount everest is all these guide companies are, are uh, one team is told don't go up till wednesday and they go up on monday and there's not enough tents and you know i mean right they're not staying in line they're not doing what they're t- there's not much cooperation and right. that's why they get these that's why that gridlock happens yeah, and it's just to say you've been there at the top of Mount Everest and yeah. the top of Mount Washington. When you're right, some of the other peaks are, you know, my, my favorite's Jefferson. Jefferson, you know? absolutely. Um, and, and you can look over and see Wash, and, you know, we're just a, a hair shorter, <laughs> but it, it's definitely... Uh, it's a totally different experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if and, you don't have your snacks and you don't have your drinks and you don't have your gear, 
you can get in trouble. Mm-hmm. You're on top of my Washington, you go in the restaurant and get a hot dog. You know what I mean? Exactly. Or you get a ride on the cog, you get a ride down the, the, the road. And you know, that's one thing about having Mount Washington in my area. There was a lot of rescues there, but I had so many avenues to rescue people, trains, roads, AMC people, observatory, park. You know, there was so many things that I had for resources to, to facilitate those. Absolutely. And, and I... I hear you because we've ridden up the snow cat in the winter to help people. We've mm-hmm. driven up the auto road. We've been up to Tuckerman's in the snow cat. Yeah. That's, that's all good stuff. But why are we going up there? Mm. Um, why aren't we driving a snow cat up Mount Adams? Well, yeah, we've been up Mount Adams a few times, but nowhere near. Right. As many. Yeah. Right. You, you are absolutely correct. So some of the, the rescues in the whites that, that stand out with you over, you know, 40 years. Well, um, uh, I Besides guess, the one sitting next to Abrams, uh, the Frozen guys. Yeah, so that was that, 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 that. That'll be memorable for me, and uh, that was yeah. the first time I heard that story as well. But, yeah. Uh, well, there's a couple that that uh, come to mind. Um, in uh, there was the Doctor Doll event, which you may have been involved in um, back maybe 15, 20 years. It was just when cell phones first came out, and uh, Doctor Doll came over here to go hike up Mount Washington. And he just had uh, his hips replaced and he wanted to test them out. And he got here to the store, to IME. And we said, geez, you know, the weather's not very good up there today. There's supposed to be a storm coming in. He said, oh no, I'll be fine. Don't worry. And he actually bought a couple of pieces of clothing. He was supposed to meet uh, his friends here, but the friends canceled because of the weather. Mm. He said, well, I'm going to go anyway. So we went up to Pinkham. And they said, oh, well, you know, sure, hike up to Tuckerman's, but don't go above tree line. It's going to be snow and it's going to be real nasty. It's October. Mm-hmm. And so he went up to Tuckerman's. He met some people and they said, oh, Jesus, it's not looking good above tree line. Well, he went up the Lion's Head Trail anyway. And he got to tree line and his hip was really hurting. So it's starting to snow and he's thinking, well, it's pretty steep on that Lion's Head Trail. Maybe I should go down the auto road. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So I'll cut across the Alpine Gardens to get to the auto road and walk down that. Well, good plan, except that now you got a whiteout blizzard. And he gets to a trail sign just before the auto road that says Nelson Crag, one mile to the summit of Mount Washington, to your left. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, well, that's, I'm in trouble now. I'll go to the summit of Mount Washington. Well, he went on for two more Karens past that sign, which is right by the seven-mile mark, mm-hmm. the auto road. If he'd gone another 100 feet, he would have been on the been right road. been right there. But he didn't. He headed up the trail, and he honkered down um with his cell phone by a karen and now the snow is piling up and wind's blowing and he called 911 i'm on nelson crag i need to be rescued so you guys organized the rescue as a matter of fact we used the fishing game trucks with chains on them Mm. to go up the auto road to the six mile mark now nelson crag is a feature well below where he was he was on the summit cone right nelson crag is down by the top of Huntington and lower down Mm -hmm. we sent our team out in the evening now in the dark all over Nelson Craig and we couldn't find him and Mike Pelchat was there and you know as you know he's a great asset to the rescue Mm, community and Mike said I'm just going to give this one more shot to go up the Nelson Craig trail a few more feet you know of course his by now his cell phone's dead because the batteries are dead and um Mike found him under a snowbank two Karens up from that sign by the auto road because he said Nelson Craig. He didn't say summit cone or, I mean, he didn't mm-hmm. even know where he, he didn't he, know where he was. He didn't know where he was and they rescued him and they saved his life. He was mm-hmm. hypothermic. He was unconscious and he lived and he went on to, uh, become the poster boy of mountaineering cell phones. And I had a big to do with him about leave the damn cell phones home and you won't have to be rescued because if he didn't have that cell phone, he wouldn't have kept going. Right. He would have gone down tree line probably or he wouldn't have gone up the line head trail to begin wouldn't have pushed he would have totally changed his plan Mm -hmm. but he said no as long as i had my cell phone i knew i was going to be rescued and he Mm -hmm. was by luck Mm -hmm. he's alive today because he gave us the wrong information 
you know, and this is before we could GPS cell phones and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, now everybody had to have a cell phone. So that's not exactly my favorite tool out there. uh, Nor mine, because I think our rescues have increased since cell phones. 47% of New Hampshire has no cell service. Mm. There's none in the town I live in. And And yet we have it on the top of Mount Washington. It's it's just not, yeah, it's it's not just the mountains, (laughs) valleys. It's, you know, right here in town. Right. Cell service. Uh, so that's that's one that that certainly stood out in my mind and this gets kind of into uh, uh, an area uh, that I found interesting where we had another fella with a similar hip replacement over on Lafayette who uh, decided to do a traverse I guess a couple of days out into real bad weather it poured uh, he uh, was eventually rescued uh, through the night we were up to our waist in water coming down the Fallen Waters Trail. And at this point, fishing game was becoming a little overloaded with rescue missions. And, of course, they're working with us now. This is more modern times. We have the elite team. We're sending officers out almost every day on uh, hiking missions. We're, we're working together on these more difficult ones, uh, mm-hmm. nighttime uh, litter carries and, and, you know, who knows what. And so some of the people in Concord decided that maybe we should charge for these rescues. And I am, it's kind of like if somebody crashes their car and, in, and it's just an accident, you don't find them. Mm-hmm. But if they're drunk driving and they crash or they're doing reckless driving, then they're fined. Right. So if you would look at the rescue business like that and say, if we got an idiot out there who broke the rules and needs to be rescued, then we should bill them. And, and this is the way it was explained to me by uh, one of the, probably Marty or, or somebody who was very involved yep, so in the, the rescue fishing business. game probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, well, this is how we look at it. If a guy and his wife and two kids go out hiking with no headlamp in the fall and they get stuck three miles up a trail and we have to go get them and walk them out with a headlamp, that's not smart, but it's not reckless. Right. If a person goes out and falls down and breaks their leg and we have to go get them, that's not reckless. No. Nope. It's just a car accident. It just happens. happens. Yep. If a guy goes into um, Dry River and there's a big sign that says, the trails ahead have been destroyed by Katrina. If you, please don't enter. If you do, you do at your own risk. Right. So you climb over the sign, <laughs> go up into Dry River, and then call 911. Right. You send that guy a bill? That's reckless. Absolutely. And, it, and it's put search and rescue people at risk, at risk. too. That's and right. That, and that's the biggest thing I have. And with so many rescues and using the same people constantly, it wears people out. If it's your third rescue of the weekend, yep. you, you are working at half speed probably anyways. That's right. And uh, now you're putting those people that are tired at risk by being reckless. So I think that we need to be a little bit better communicating to our livelihood, which is the tourists that come to, mm-hmm. use, you know, hunt no and fish and, and boat and everything else and, and tell them that it, it doesn't matter what activity they're doing. If they're reckless boaters, if they're mm-hmm. reckless hunters, if they're reckless hikers. Absolutely. Yeah, they might get a bill for right. their actions. But if they're just out there recreating and something happens, it's yeah. going to happen. That happens. Then we're glad as volunteers. Mm-hmm. Fish and Game is doing their job to help these tourists. And guys in Concord give the Fish and Game the money they need to do the job. Absolutely. They whine about $200,000? Yeah. What are you guys talking about? But when the tourism brings in millions and millions, millions of dollars millions. in uh, uh, lodging and meals tax. Yeah. They just the economy of this whole area up here is dependent on them driving up here, and mm-hmm. even if it's up in you know Berlin where they're now tearing around in four wheelers, this right. is all part of our livelihood. Absolutely, I, I hear fishing game whine about them a little bit. <laughs> I guess you, you have an accident a week up there or something. It's it's quite yeah. <clears throat> well, okay, it gives you something yeah, to do. But I guess right. the point being that that if this is what we're here to do, then let's support the fishing game and give them the 200,000 in overtime. And quite frankly, if those guys have worked all week and then they're called out to go out all night, they deserve that money. Mm-hmm. That's their job. Right. You know? Yeah. And uh, just like we have our jobs down here that are dependent on tourism. But, it's but, but we same. couldn't do it without the volunteers. And that well, is so much more that the volunteers give 
freely to do the same thing that Fishing Game is getting paid to do, which just, you know, it just says so much for those people. Most of them are hikers. Most of them are committed to that group. And, man, I'll tell you what, we got an awesome group of people that help with that. But think about it. Leaving a little bit more, we're a very self-serving group. Nine times Mountain Rescue has rescued team members. <laughs> and who would rescue them if there wasn't a Mountain Rescue? Oh, boy. You're right. So when I go out and hang off the cliff, mm -hmm. I know if I get in trouble, which I hope I never will, I carry a cyanide pill. They'll never take me alive. <laughs> but if something were to happen, that a good team would come and get me. And I guess... You know, when you read some of the new books that have come out on Mountain Rescue, one of the theories is let them all go out there and let them all die. You know, if, if they go <laughs> past the road, they're on their own. Mm -hmm. No rescue teams, no fishing game, nobody go get them. Well, what if that's your kid? What if it's uh, your friend? What if it's, you know. Yeah, when you frame it like that, these, these we all know how we would react. Not all just from New Jersey. I no. mean, they can be um, your neighbor. Mm -hmm. They can be a team member of our team. Uh, and so I feel that, the rescue that we have in New Hampshire is unique in the United States. Other states look at us, and then they get the idea, oh, we'll just bill everybody for the rescues. That's the only part of the equation that doesn't fit for me. Mm -hmm. Build the reckless people like you would right. any other thing in life, mm -hmm. and let's take care of our, our friends that are out there in the mountains. No doubt. It's us and us. No doubt. Yeah. Any of this high angle stuff, because that's when I think, uh, when I think ropes, I think of mountain rescue service. When I need that's, ropes, that's what I'm calling the, you know, the mountain rescue service team, because that's, yeah, that, that's, that's getting a, a, above, you know, even though we have some people, we don't have a lot of people, so we need help and we need our people to work with your people on right. that type of stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, the Cannon Cliffs always come in and you guys have done some outstanding work on yeah. cannon cliffs i absolutely. mean absolutely that's and that and that's something you can see you can sit in the parking lot with a spotting scope and watch you work yeah you know yeah um, we had a famous rescue on cannon on the whitney gilman ridge which is one of the famous climbs there many years ago where one of the climbers on mountain rescue got his leg stuck in a crack and we went up and we um greased up his leg with with axle grease and pounded some wedges in above and below his knee and popped him out and brought him down Wow. That was ingenious, actually, the, the, the axle grease idea. Sometimes you have to yeah. you know, figure out how you're going to do that. And right. the problem is the more he wiggled his foot, his knee, the more it swelled. So right. it got worse and worse. You know, so I, I think about that, uh, that climber out west that had to cut his arm off because he got wedged in a, a similar situation. Except kind of like that. Yeah. A leg, I don't think. I don't think you would have survived that. No, we weren't yeah. going to cut his leg off. No. We got him out of there. Yeah, boy. Yeah. And that's by hanging on a rope in a harness next to a guy so four, four or five hours in that crack before we got to him and brought him yeah, yeah. Uh, that's 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 unbelievable and that's you know that's the thing those books are written about and uh the the thing i appreciate about you guys that you can actually go up there and do that because you know i i don't want to to begin with i i learned early i was in new river gorge west virginia and i did some climbing down there love rappelling rappelling was great climbing yeah it just wasn't for me <laughs> but rappelling is very dangerous, as you well know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's more dangerous than the climbing. Mm. It's more accidents rappelling than but, actually climbing. But, but it was a lot more fun, I guess, to me. <laughs> but this brings just, I think, one more thought to my mind about this whole rescue business is at what um, decision level do we uh, tell our team members, whether it be fishing game or forest or whoever, mountain rescue, that there's too much danger involved in what we're doing and we're not going to do it. Yes. And the general public does not understand that, you know, when somebody gets in trouble above Timberline in a 100-mile-an-hour wind at minus 20 in the middle of the night and needs help and we don't know where they are, that helicopters are not going to fly out of the sky mm -mm. and people are not going to come and search the whole presidential range overnight. Right. I mean, with the Kate thing, we knew at least where she was with the spot, but then the spot thing went, gave us... Yeah, it gave us like 12 different locations. Right. So was mm -hmm. that a good call to tell our team members... Not to go above Timberline, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people got to understand and, and, that and, too. And, it's you know we it, can't. We've lost one climber once, Albert Dow, mm -hmm. in an avalanche in Tuckerman's hunting for lost you know climbers in Huntington, and that's enough. And and uh, one of the things I've always talked to lieutenants who are um, doing these, like you say when you call me, what do we talk about? We talk about the risks to the mm -hmm. team. Can we do this? How can we do this? How can right. we do this safely? 
And, and, and we're talking to the best people, in my opinion, in the world that do this. So, uh, you know, if I'm having any doubts and then you're having any doubts, it's, you know, uh, we're not going to put ourselves at risk. And, you know, that's that's very important, especially when you're talking about negative 96 with the Cape Trimetrasova yep. was the second coldest place in the world. Yeah. And we were sending out rescue teams uh, and uh, they they struggled. They struggled, yeah. at least at least our end struggled. And right. uh, to, for us, we're that type A personality. We're those guys that want to peak no matter what. Yeah. So it's that's the hardest decision, I think, for us. And uh, to put ourselves in the, 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 that same place is to say no, because we like saving people. We want to save people, even if we put our own life at risk. But, you know, and that's, that's the job of the lieutenant, the supervisor, to say no. And then... The well, job of the officer to understand it. <laughs> the fishing game and the fire surface have never told me what to do, whether I liked it or not. They've never said, go there and do that. Mm-hmm. They've always said, Leave it what do you, you think? Yes. And we'll discuss it. Yeah. And we'll make it. And decision. ultimately, it's your decision. Well. Because I'm never going to tell you, or no, there, no one's ever going to tell you to go. Right. It's your decision because you're going. But if going. I tell you we can't do that, yes. you're not going to sit there and go, oh, what a no. bunch of weenies, you know? No, 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 no because I know it's, right. if you're going to say you can't do that, then it can't be done. Right. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's. There's no point in killing any more of our rescue team members. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and we are so lucky to have guys like you and, you know, to use your the presidential reign as your base camp. Yeah. So we can use you as a resource so you can be a resource with us. And, uh, you know, I think the only other... Th- a fish and game agency, Maine, the Maine Warden Service, you know, works similar to us. And yep. um, I don't think they do as many missions because they don't have the terrain that we do. We don't have the whites and, right. you know, they have Katahdin. Yep. So, I know all about Katahdin. Yes, oh, yeah. you've done Katahdin quite I've a few times. been up times. there on rescue missions. Uh, yeah. It's a little different world up there, but we won't discuss that today. Yeah, yeah. no, that, 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 that's great. So, no, I, I really appreciate uh, all your years of dedication and volunteerism, Rick, to, to helping rescues in the mountains. Uh, you know, the relationships you've built with volunteers of the fishing game, with the Forest Service, um, it's priceless. It, it really is. And to, to bring, you know, listeners into that and, and kind of give us a better feeling of the experience you bring to the table and uh, how you've helped us through the years to build this uh, this mountain rescue team is uh, just, just outstanding and it's going to continue on. You've got a lot of people that you've uh, put into play and uh, that are capable. So... Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Watch Waypoint TV's Great Outdoors Month celebration presented by Battery Tender every Tuesday in June from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Join us for land management tips, family hunts, and conservation-centric films as we show our appreciation for the great outdoors. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.